Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of Bees Pod. It's the first of the 2020-2021 season, and we're delighted to bring you a special two-part episode. The first part sees me and Mem go through and look back at Barnet's start of the season, the ups, the downs, and the hopes for the future games coming up in what's set to be a very busy November and December period. And in the second part, we're delighted to have one Dan Whiting, whose recent book, The Barnet Affair, is a fantastic guide to the club's recent history, and we really recommend you check it out. So it's a nice long episode, plenty to talk about, plenty to discuss, and we really hope you enjoy it. Hello everyone, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, episode of Bees Pod, our first of the 2020-2021 season. And as ever, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Mem uh, to look back over the first few months of Barnett's season uh, in the conference. Premier Mem, how are you doing this evening? Really good, really good. Um, yeah, it's been, I am actually currently in isolation. My son's got COVID, so, uh, so currently 14 days I'm going to be sitting in my house, so I've got nothing to do at the moment. But, well, uh, fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, he makes a swift recovery, as some of the Barnet fans have made. Perhaps he get some consultancy advice from Hartlepool, uh, who seem to have a bunch of esteemed epidemiologists. Uh, you nicked my joke. I was literally. About- I did. I'm so <laughs> I was sorry. so good. I was so waiting to do that. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, it was a good one, man. It was a good one. Um, but anyway, uh, that aside. Uh, Mem, it's been an interesting start to um, the season uh, for Barnet. Um, you could say it's it's sort of encapsulated what it's like to be, be a Barnet fan. We've gone from being tonked uh, at home uh, 5-1, conceding 10 goals in the first three games, um, to you know putting together a reasonable strong of results, which has seen us uh, unbeaten in our last three and, and getting the right way with, with two clean sheets in those games. I mean... In a nutshell, Mem, what has the first month told us about this Barnet side? So I suppose on one hand, I mean, I look at the team. It's not the most talented team we've had in a long while. Um, it's probably one of the weakest teams we've had. But on 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 one side, you've got that. On the other side, there seems to be a a togetherness and there seems to be a bit of a spirit and a heart with this team, which has surprised me because... I dreaded, I dreaded the worst after that first performance and thought, oh my God, this is going to be another season like um, when, when Gary Phillips took over you know, and had to rebuild a side or when Mark Robson you know, had rebuilt a side and you know, we, got, we were getting tanked every week. I genuinely, I genuinely felt this could be you know, that kind of season. But I've been pleasantly surprised with the way the players have picked up. And yeah, I feel, I feel like there's, there's a, bit, a bit of spirit about this group. Yeah, I think one of the things that's been interesting is that we have quite a small and tight-knit squad. And in part, that's by necessity because we haven't, you know, we, we lost a lot of players in the in the break um, between the seasons. And also, we, we didn't have a huge amount of players that were being retained. Um, and we struggled in some ways to really build the squad up until the final few weeks of pre-season. But I think small clubs always do well when you've got a sort of quite a tight-knit group. There aren't too many hangers on. You know, I think some of, when I think about some of the more... The, <laughs> the more uh, frustrating Barnet squad, shall we say, it's often been when we've had sort of 30, 35 players on the books um, and it's just a lot of bloat. And actually this time we've got a squad where, sure, we don't have that many 9 out of 10s or 10s out of 10s. But we've got a hell of a lot of 6 out of 10s um, and, and a, a sort of real consistency um, to some of the players, which I think um, is, a, is a real positive sign. I mean, on, on that note, 
we've seen a lot of players come into the club over the summer break. Um, you know, there's there's been a few sort of standout performances in recent weeks and games. But but who's really impressed you in terms of some of the new players that we brought to the club uh, since uh, since September? I suppose the obvious one is JJ Hooper, um, but there's, it's a bit more than uh, a bit more than the obvious because I think what I've seen from JJ is, um, despite you know, aside from the fact he scored a few goals, which is great, great little start. I like the fact that he um, the ball sticks with him, um, and he's he's not that tar- he's not a target man in the kind of typical sense, the big ugly kind of you know scrapping with defenders. He's very um, very mobile and. I like the fact that when the ball comes to him at a certain height, he tries to get his chest on it and brings it down rather than flicking balls on. He's got a nice leap on him. And I think if we can learn to play off him, um, he's going to be, I think this season, he's going to be our main man. Um, I, I genuinely think that him and Walker could become a really you know, nice partnership. So I'd say, so JJ Hooper, the other player that's um, impressed me is uh, so far is, uh, Elliot Richards is it Elliot Richards. I think I think Richards is surname. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he looks very neat and tidy. But one thing I noticed about him is he's, he's very um, he's a very honest player. So he he scored the goal. Obviously the winner at Dagenham, but um, against um, Wrexham he played really a disciplined role on the right side of midfield, um, and he protected McQueen and he was. Uh, I thought in general, he's been very neat and tidy and a real solid, solid player. Um, and I thought, I thought Preston had a, he struggled in the first game, but I thought in this recent game at Wrexham, he was outstanding. Him and Dwight Pascal. Dwight Pascal, I mean, playing out of position, um, apparently he was really good at um, in the FA Cup. But against Wrexham, I thought he was brilliant. Um, so I would say them four, to me, stood out. Um, you know, out of the new players. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think JJ Hooper is a really interesting one. Um, he, if you look at his record over the past few seasons uh, with Bromley, um, and even like before that in the league, but with, with Bromley and Wrexham, you know, Wrexham, he was scoring, you know, a goal in every three uh, in, in, in our league. And then at Bromley, he was scoring, um, you know, we think he scored about a goal in, goal in every two. He's a decent striker at this level. And I think if you look at the signings, they're kind of at the right age. Like we signed a lot of players that, um, you know, are sort of in their mid to late 20s. Whereas in previous seasons, we've tried to sign a profile of player that's a lot younger than that and often need a bit of time to get going. Um, I was really impressed with Dwight Pascal's performance against Wrexham. I think he's someone that's grown so much. When you think back to the last few times where he was having a consistent run, we had that run in the side, uh, I think it was under Marstan and towards, maybe even under Graham Wesley, where he ended up getting himself sent off and, and showing that inexperience. I think the players have really grown. I think the other player that's, that's been really exciting, and it's not just because of his goals, um, is Petrasso, who I think actually is a little bit more of a touch above in terms of quality than what we've had in some of the attack going forwards. And again, he's a player who's 25 years old. He's coming in from a, abroad. We've had a, a real sort of checkered history of signing players from abroad. You think back to sort of players that have just come out of nowhere, like Tommy Black or, you know, these players like uh, Collins John, who have sort of appeared from nowhere and haven't actually had the best impact. But he probably seems more in the mould of, of even players like Dan Leach or, or players who have just sort of come from abroad and give us something slightly different um, and are a bit of an unknown quantity. 
And I think the most important thing we've we've done in the recent few games is is showing that we we can keep a, a solid clean sheet at the back, which was obviously the concern after the Easter game. We've kept you know two clean sheets in the in the past two games, and even in the in the Leaston uh, or the Leaston, however you say it, game, the goals we conceded there, sort of set pieces and individual errors, you know, they're they're eradicable with with, with quality. So actually, I think what what Bead was done is in the space of a month has taken us from being a reasonable side in terms of going forwards in certain areas to one that's actually got a decent decent back four and a decent defence and um, can actually sort of you know not not push on as I said I don't think there's many expectations that we're going to be pushing for the playoffs but be competitive and and actually be the sort of foundations of, of a side perhaps over the next two three years that could, that could push on and challenge I agree I do agree with that and I think um because yeah if you look at, I mean if you look at our centre mid I mean our centre mid is a upper reach is of you know is the top top half of the table um uh national league team but we did say and we have said that actually that's probably the area that if we wanted to go into be a promotion winning team that's the area we'd have to improve and at the moment that is one of the, the strongest parts of our team so it tells you how how you know that we have to sort of try and increase the, the quality levels amongst the rest of the team um over time and but this is a good this is a good platform i think because it, we look um, we're picking up points. So was that seven points we've got in uh, five games? No, is yeah, that's correct. Yeah, seven points in five seven games. Seven points in five games. Yeah, which is not bad. Which is not a bad um, tally uh, at this stage of the season. It's bear, bear in mind we've we've had to play Daggers already and Notts County. Um, so you know we who probably two of the favourites. So you know so far it's been it's been a solid start, and I think. Um, once we and we've got more players coming back because I thought Ephraim Mason Clark was was looking very um, looking very hungry early in the season, and we've got him to come back after COVID. We've got Scott, uh, we've got um, got Loach coming to come back. Uh, we've got Nugent to come back. Um, who else have we got to come back? Uh, West Von Gook, who's again, who's, yeah. he looks like he started the season well. So yeah, I mean there is there is better players to come back, which which is which you know maybe you know. Uh, maybe that this is the sides a bit better than we thought. Yeah, I think the one sort of caveat I'd add is that I think particularly at our level of football, the, there's an element that the bigger clubs really benefit from home advantage um, in terms of the crowd and also in terms of the travel. And we know from our own experience that sometimes, you know, there's a massive variability in how clubs travel when they choose to go overnight, when they choose to go in a day. And I think all those pressures are just going to be um, slightly equalised a little bit by lockdown and by COVID. I mean, the, you know, it's just intimate. If you're used to playing in front of a thousand fans a week, going away to somewhere like Notts County or, you know, Wrexham, where there's a lot of fans or even Chesterfield, where there's a huge volume of fans, can be a lot more intimidating. And whereas nowadays, those those sort of big away days become a little bit more exciting and a little bit more enjoyable because you're just playing another game of football without the pressure and you're playing in a nice environment. And so what I kind of expect to see is what we're seeing already in the league, which is the Actually, the league is going to be much for muchness. And I think that there's, there's going to be a lot tighter, even though you see it in the Premier League as well, it's going to be a lot tighter between the top and the bottom than in previous years. And if you actually look at the league table now, you know, you've got Chesterfield um, and Altrincham who have played a game fewer than most sides in the league and have got three points each. But beyond that, every single side has picked up a win with the exception of Yeovil who have got a couple of draws, who've got four draws. And I think you're going to see, unlike in previous years, where sometimes like those part-time sides at the bottom get cut adrift 
like your trolleys or your auctioniums, etc. I think what you're going to see this year is a lot more of a competitive league, um, perhaps with maybe less quality across the board and maybe one or two sides that kick on and, and push ahead. But what's been really interesting in my view has been Dagenham, who are a side that we played at the start of the season and, and obviously got a good result there, um, really struggling. And they're a side that we know invested heavily in talent and in, in sort of bringing quality players with the sort of expectation perhaps they might take a calculated gamble to try and get up the league. But actually... You know, based on their results this season, they're struggling to get you know any sort of performance together. They just about straight past um, you know a pretty poor non-league side on in the FA Cup. I think actually we, we've sort of adopted quite a smart strategy, which is to build a solid squad, not invest huge amounts of capital in the playing side, and trust that that Peter will will do a decent job of of bringing together the side throughout the course of the season. So definitely more reasons to be optimistic than than pessimistic, in my view. Agree, I agree. And having looked, to be honest, I haven't really studied the table, and I just looked here at some of the. I think some of the clubs near the top. I think Stockport have invested heavily, and I think they will. I think I think they will be. They'll start to pull away. Torquay potentially will start pulling away. They both had really strong starts, and um, both sort of um, traditional, you know, traditionally well supported clubs in their areas. And I think, and so interesting, Sutton as well up there. So. Um, this is going to be, and this is. I think it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a very interesting season, as you said. Um, I don't think we. I was worried that we might. We might have. We might. There's. A, you know. There's. A, there would be an outside possibility we could um, be struggling near the bottom. But from what I've seen so far, I think. I think we'll. You know, comfortably be in the mid table this season. Uh, I think. In terms it, of. <laughs> Sorry, ma'am, to interrupt you. Just, in, just, in, just a sort of a short question. In terms of what you've seen of the games, I know I think we've, we've both watched all of the games we, that have been available to watch. What have you sort of seen from Peter Beadle in terms of the playing style or the ideas that he's trying to introduce? Or is it just a case that he's, he's sort of setting up the side to you know, do the basics well at the moment? Well, he seems... Um, so what he seems to have done is um, he, he's, he's played between a 4 2 3 one, and a four-four-two um, in, 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 in the system. What I've noticed is that he tries to keep the centre of the pitch quite solid. Um, so he's so, and then he's he's utilising the wide players. So Efren's been a standout player. Patrasso has been quite a standout player in the last couple of games. Um, and he's interesting. I think he's playing Walker. He played Walker from the side a little bit. So I think he's using JJ Hooper as a as a focal point. Um, we seem to be passing the ball through, trying to pass the ball through lines. And I've noticed that Nugent um, does punch the ball really nicely through, uh, through yeah. midfield. Um, his sort of play, I think that I'm a, I, I worry though a little bit on that left side because I think between him and Bid and Williams, there's not a huge amount of pace. And I think Cooper, I quite like the look of Cooper actually. Um, so, you know, and so, but what, one thing that does, you know, you've got a bit of, you've got decent height throughout the side. Um, which I think means I think over the season we'll see some good, you know, a lot of set piece goals. Um, but we are trying to play, and it's, it's it's noticeable from the back. You know, Nugent's trying to, you know, is trying to play from the back. We've got players who seem quite comfortable in possession in, from the full back areas, and we do seem to be using the wide areas quite a lot. Um, that seems to be the, the target, and then we and we sort of fill the centre with. So Wes has been playing as a ten, um, and then he's behind that. He's at Harry Taylor and. Um, he said Harry Taylor and, uh, and James Dunn. Um, so, and then they've got the new guy, and I've, got, I've forgotten his name now, um, who's, who's come in, who's a bit of a sort of, uh, who's covering for everybody. Um, the one that was at Hereford, just gone blank. 
Norman Burney. Uh, Duffers. 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 Yeah, Duffers. Duffers. Yeah, Duffers. Yes, he's got a Duffers. But yeah, generally speaking, he tries to keep the centre of the pitch solid and we're using the width a lot. And I think Walker, he's got, he looks like he might play Walker from potentially from the sides. But then in the last yeah. game, he played Walker up front with um, uh, dovetailing with JJ. Yeah, I, I think it, it probably makes sense to perhaps be slightly more conservative it's interesting. Like I think there's a bit of flexibility in the side, um, and I think you've got a couple of players who are very good at fulfilling a certain role. Like James Dunn is a, is a good sort of midfield marshal, but players like Harry Taylor are very intelligent and are able. I think probably Harry Taylor is one of the more intelligent players in the league, and he's able to sort of adapt his position to the game. Um, and if you play him alongside James Dunn in their pivot, it does give you the flexibility to go to a you know either you start off with a four-two-three-one, but um, you know Harry's quite good at knowing when to press and when to sit off and so if an opposition side were playing with two deep midfielders he, he's quite good at pushing on and, and knowing when to push on uh, off the ball to apply that pressure and then also he's very good I think as well at covering into the fullbacks so when the fullback gets pulled wide he sort of slots into that sort of defensive shape very very well so I think we, we've got that sort of ability to be a little bit flexible um, I think what's impressed me is actually the, the quality on the ball is higher than I thought it would be. I thought Ben and Williams exemplified this with this sort of run against Dagenham, which will be is a bit of a, a bit of a one off. We, we've got obviously physical presence, which is important at this league. And the reality is at our level, as in most levels of football, like set pieces, your sort of bread and butter are really important in getting results and, and stopping negative results. I've been impressed with, with Ben and Williams and players like that. But actually the, the quality on the ball I think is beginning to emerge. And I think I watched that Easter game and it was really odd. We didn't play well and, and we deserved to lose and, and deserved to lose heavily. But the actual difference between the sides was, was probably more in moments than it was in terms of throughout the 90 minutes. Um, and that's probably not, that's often a sign of a side that are just finding their feet. I think a lot of people looked at that result and you thought, oh my God, we're going to get relegated. We're going to, you know, it's going to be a disaster. Um, but actually like, you know, you've got to look beyond the results sometimes and see that this is a group of players that are finding their feet and are trying to, yeah, trying to play football and are trying to get to know each other. And, and actually, we've got to show a bit of patience to them. I agree. Actually, to be honest, there was a period in that game I thought we played very well. Um, I think that, like you said, it was moments. and We didn't manage the moments very well. Um, one thing I think, especially with the sort of, uh, a lot of the players hadn't played together before, so I think there was a lack of communication. Um but in that game against Eastleigh, uh, you you just I, my only worry from that game was was the you know the the harm it would cause to the players' the confidence. So, I, you know, it, there was moments in the game where I thought actually, yeah, we, we look we look every bit the equal of Eastleigh, but I think that they clearly are much more you know a, cl- a much more together unit uh, compared to us. Um, but since then, like you said, I've been, yeah, I've been impressed with it, the fact that we've tried to play. Um, and you know we we, we definitely we, there's definitely a lot to build on and there's we will we will get better and better this season I think. Sorry, I think we're, we're probably a little bit more, um, probably a little bit more pragmatic around um, the squad, and in terms of actually, in previous years, you know, certainly last season, you probably felt that there was the, the sort of building blocks of a really strong, challenging side. I think here there are a couple of building blocks, but there's also like a bit of a cap on on the squad in some ways. Um, like, if you, it's interesting, like looking at the way in which the side last year. 
um, the play, where the players have gone on to. David Tatonda's, by all accounts, doing exceptionally well. Bristol Rovers, um, you know, players like um, Sweeney and you know Reynolds, etc. I mean, it, Reynolds less so, but Sweeney and and players that have moved on um, are are playing well at a higher level than we are. I think our players in the current squad probably don't have that that upper reach, um, and so you know making progress will require new talent as opposed to just developing current talent to some extent. But actually, like I think what, what you alluded to earlier in terms of the spirit and the togetherness is really pleasing. And I think that is just so important um, because it is a tough and challenging time for everyone, including footballers. And I think actually it is a very, we often don't think about it. It's a very uncertain time for players at our level. It was only recently that we got the government funding uh, or the FA funding for the league through. Um, there are, there are added pressures on a lot of players and the jobs aren't necessarily there. The futures aren't quite as secure. Um, and, you know, I'm sure families and friends are going to be suffering with, with the economy and the, and the sort of lockdown that's occurring from it. Um, and I think we, that togetherness, that spirit, that fight is just so important because I think there's a hidden aspect to a lot of this on players in terms of the pressures that they face are just higher than other other seasons and so having a slightly more experienced slightly more together squad I think now more than ever is, is absolutely crucial yeah and no, I agree and I think also um, by having a group of players that we can warm to and I think a lot of people are starting to warm to the players um, just you know I think also everybody's getting a lot more exposure because obviously we're able to stream matches the away matches as well so we're starting to see you know again getting a lot more information about the players um, and I think that will hold us in good stead because I think once we get into the ground, if we've built up a bond already, like, you know, this emotional bond with a player, like a lot of people have been really impressed with, like you said, like Dwight Pascal and, you know, they're going to really, when they get back in the stadium, we'll be desperate to support them, desperate to, to, you know, to really get behind them. And I think that will really help to create that bond between the fans and the team um, for us to build upon um, because, it could have quite easily gone the gone the complete opposite way in players. You know, we've lost lost uh, you know a lot of players and and a team that looked like it was on the on its way forward. So, you know, this team so far so good so far. Peter Beal has done a you know a, a decent job um, in a trying in trying circumstances. So, yeah, I mean, the fingers crossed that we, you know in a month's time or in a few weeks' time when we come back to you know do another beast pod that this is this theme is continued. Yeah, well, hundred percent. I mean, yeah, I think that's that, that's a good summation of, of where we're at, men. And in in the second part of, part of this show, we are uh, going to be talking to uh, Dan Whiting, who's written a, a brilliant book. Uh, if you haven't got it already, called The Barnet Affair. Uh, Mem and I have both devoured it in a, in a couple of days. Um, so I look forward to sort of introducing uh, him after the break. Um, but until then, Mem, I think we, we're agreeing it's been a reasonably positive start to the season. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, guys. Well, um, we hope to be back on a, on a sort of you know rolling monthly basis or so uh, with some uh, ideas and, and thoughts from the team. Um, we hope that everyone is is well and safe. And um, as ever, if you've got any questions or thoughts or things you'd like us to discuss, do let us know via Twitter or social media. Um, but until then, we are going to say a very warm welcome to uh, Dan Whiting after this little break. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this special section of Beast Pod. Uh, we're absolutely delighted, Mem and I, this evening to be joined uh, by none other than Dan Whiting, who has written uh, the book that has kept me occupied uh, for the last few days. So I've absolutely loved every minute of reading The Barnet Affair. Um, Dan, I guess, could you just quickly introduce yourself to the pod and tell us who you are and, and how you've kind of come about writing 
uh, this book, Barnet Affair, The Ups and Downs of Following the Bees? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's a lifetime achievement for me actually being on your show, actually being on the Bees <laughs> for, uh, It's a pleasure to be on here. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm a writer. Uh, Barnet Affair is my fifth book. I've generally written on cricket before. And uh, this is my first uh, first delve into football writing. And uh, I've been a Barnet fan since 1983, as uh, anyone who's read the book will, uh, will testify to. So uh, yeah, since October 83 was my first game. And uh, you know, I've done my bit over the years of sort of going home and away. And I've been to Barrow, I've been to Gateshead, and I've been to places like that. And uh, I thought I'd, I'd document my experiences. Well, um, just to get us started, Dan, I'm, I'm actually going to start with uh, the cover of the book. Mem and I are going to sort of ask alternating questions. Um, but the cover of the book, uh, I love it, A, because I'm in the cover. I'm not going to tell you where. Um, I think I was 11 when that photo was taken. Um, but B, because I think the photograph, which is, uh, I think, either what Arthur Gratz or, or Peter Beadle scored uh, the second goal in a 2-1 win against Stevenish Borough back in, I think, the, uh, the, the autumn of 2003 or September 2003, summed up for me one of the best Barnet away days. And I just wanted to start with, with that and, and why you chose, of all the photos you could have picked, of all the characters, of all the people, um, why you went with that one. Yeah, I mean, I love the photo. It's always there. But there's a, there's a friend of mine called Lonsdale who's uh, sadly passed away about eight, nine years ago. And I think a lot of Barnet fans will remember him. And he's down in the front row. I think he's on his way back from the T-bar. And he's flicking the V sign over at the Stevenage fans. He's in a light blue shirt at the front, flicking yeah. the V sign. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just... I wanted it a little bit for him, but I just love the photo anyway. I think it just encapsulates everything. And there are a few people who weren't too happy with me not using an underhill photo, but, uh, you know, I, I, think it, I think it's great. I think it's a great pick. It's interesting, actually, Dan, because uh, you said that people are saying about the underhill, because actually the book talks a lot about away days. And what struck me the most about it is, um, and you do comment on it, is how the fan base has kind of dwindled as going away. And I, I remember games that were going away and be four, 500 of us um, at, you know, at the far flung places. Um, and so it's, it's, it's great. There is a lot of um, stories, but one thing actually, and I brought this up to you as well, I didn't realize Barnet had any kind of firm. Um, I must, it must <laughs> be lost to me. And, and there's a lot of stories in there that I was just like, really? Barnet, like you know, they actually took people away and had a, you know, had a, had a tear up. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, what I wanted to get across, I didn't want it to sort of come across as any type of hooligan book at all. I wanted it to actually be a proper book. But I think anyone who went to football in the eighties, I think the threat was always there or thereabouts, and it was generally on trains. You know, I mean, occasionally we bumped into we bumped into Millwall once on the way back from Frickley. We bumped into West Ham once on the way back from Scarborough, and uh, yeah, we went very quiet. <laughs> so, is, who's who were the sort of the main crew that you used to go uh, to away matches with? Uh, well, there's, there's a group of us in the in the 80s. Uh, we were known as the ADB, uh, the Away Day Boys, and we weren't a firm by any sort of imagination. I mean, you know, a few of the boys occasionally did get involved in various shenanigans, but I think it was just sort of more drink-related stuff. But, uh, you know, a lot of those guys are lifetime friends. I mean, people like Paul Rufford and Neil Manville, 
John Cosgrove, people like that I've known for 30, 40 years. Reckless, I've known for years and years and years. I've known Reckless since I was about 14, where I bumped into him once when he was, uh, I think he was a backing musician for Five Star at the time. <laughs> and uh, I bumped into him at Finchley before they were even Wingate and Finchley. They were just Finchley Football Club. And uh, I think I first bumped into him there, yeah. It was interesting reading all the different stories um, around um, the period um, sort of leading up to Barnet actually getting promoted the first time. So what I found interesting about it, because my, my journey with, uh, with Barnet was reading about them in the Barnet Post and, uh, and Barnet Advertiser, or whether it was the local paper at the time, and seeing just how many goals Barnet was scoring. And I was kind of really wanted to keep going to my mum, let me go, let me go. And it was interesting, obviously, that, that whole period where it looked like we would never, ever get into the league. Um, how did that, you know, what was the kind of feeling around the support around that time? You know, they just constantly keep missing out and finishing second. You know, how did, how did, how was the, what was the sort of general feeling around the crowd, around the, the support? We never thought we'd make it. We thought that we would be eternal bridesmaids. Um, I mean, we were banging in 100 goals regularly. Uh, you know, you had people like... Uh, well, first of all, you had Nicky Evans and Steve Mahoney and people like that. Dave Sansom. And then they started getting in people like uh, Gary Abbott. Um, and then sort of Gary Ball was signed. And, uh, you know, we had people who would score goals left, right and centre. But, we'd, um, you know, we, we would lose the big games. And I sort of try to get this across in the chapter on Fry. Now, I don't know if he hyped them up too much, but the crucial games we tended to lose. And, um, you know, we, we thought that we would be eternal bridesmaids. I thought especially the Darlington year, after we'd, the year before we actually went up, so 1989-90, and Darlington went up and we had a massive, massive game at Underhill at the end of March, and uh, they beat us 2-0, and, you know, they scored, I think they scored two in the first 10, 15 minutes or so, I think David Cork, the ex-Arsenal guy, scored one or possibly both of them, and um, I just thought we'd never make it, I just thought we would never, ever be a league side, I thought we'd just, you know, fizzle away and not make it. Like Enfield. <laughs> well, you know, one doesn't even like to even mention their name on such a Barney podcast. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Have you got a question, Ian? Or... Yeah. Dan, I just wanted to just, to just talk to you a little bit about the, the process of, of writing a book and, um, and sort of how you went about doing it. I mean, obviously, as you, you're a Barnet fan and everyone thinks that their club is unique, but one thing that really comes through, I think, when reading the book is just... Um, just how many sort of little quirks and anecdotes and stories and and sort of watch what a sort of rich tapestry of history there is with the club and I was just wondering if there were any sort of anecdotes or personal memories that stood out to you as you were reading the book that you really felt up sort of summed up Barnet um, and I know we've talked a little bit about some of the ones off air about the sort of Carlisle game and the the tea lady and all that sort of stuff. But I was just curious if there was any, any sort of particular moments or any sort of favourite memories that you, you had when you're writing the book that really stood out and sort of encapsulates what Barnet means. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think with this one, it, it was, you can do it. You know, you can do it from when you first started watching right up until the present day. So I don't think that's, that was sort of too hard. I mean, other books I've written have been sort of all over the place and different chapters on different people. So uh, I think this one was sort of quite easy in the way that it was in chronological order. But what what's unique about Barnet is, you know, I'm sure 
you know, we're all from the North London area, I presume, aren't we? And, you know, I mean, I live I live in East Barnet now. I live in East Barnet, sort of Southgate way. And there's a lot of people around this area support Arsenal, Tottenham, etc. But you don't get to see the characters there week in, week out that you do at Barnet. You know, when there's 2,000 people in the crowd, you go, oh, look, there's Steve Percy. Oh, look, there's Little Man. Oh, look, there's, you know, whoever. You know, and you don't get to see those those characters week in, week out in a crowd of 60,000. And I think that's what's unique about Barnet, you know, is, is the fact that you do get these these individuals you see at every game and stand in the same place. And uh, I think that that's sort of what's come across in the book. Just to follow up with that, um, Dan, are there any sort of like favourite matches or, or moments that stand out to you that you have while writing it? Because obviously there, is, there are a couple of great clashes you write about, the Lincoln games uh, back, you know, sort of the sort of battles with Barry Fry at the helm. Um, you talk a little bit about some of those clashes, um, you know, around the sort of relegation vibe and also in the promotion seasons. Are there any sort of matches that, that stood out that you really enjoyed or the ones that you, you really enjoyed writing about? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say that, I mean, one of my favourite games was obviously going over to Enfield and winning the FA Cup over there. I mean, that was just magical. Um, but I think, I think sort of, although I've written a lot about the sort of the Fry era, I think my probably my favourite season was the 2004-2005 uh, season under Paul Fairclough when we won the league and there were so many sort of good trips in that season and so many sort of good games at Underhill and it felt like the vibe was really there. The East Terrace was absolutely buzzing and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that was sort of one of my favourite years and that Halifax game when we got promoted there, uh, that was just, I mean, that was absolutely superb and there was a real bond there, you know, at the time between the, the fans, the players, you know, the kit man, Buster used to drink with us. Uh, you know, Gratz would be in the, the, you know, the sort of Durham suite after the game having a beer with the fans. And there was a real connection right through the club, which I think, uh, I think might have gone a little bit by now, you know? Man. Yeah, so, I, you know, yes, yeah, it's interesting you said about that. So I was reading the book and... Um, and you mentioned loads of different players and stuff like that. But if you were to choose your top three players of all time for Barnet, what would they be? Top three? Ooh. Um, Kenny Lowe. Kenny Lowe in midfield was an absolute genius. He, uh, he's up there for me. Um, I think Gary Ball's got to be in there. And I think probably got to be Dougie Friedman. Oh, Gotta be Dougie Friedman. Dougie, I mean, Dougie Friedman's our record ever transfer. Uh, you know, unless Jack Taylor gets a load of massive add-ons on his fee. Um, but Dougie Friedman was absolutely superb in a side that weren't all that great, really. I mean, I think sort of, you know, we were in a rebuilding phase when he he came back here, and uh, I think he banged in 24 goals in his first season in a side that weren't actually that good. It's true. I actually, um, when I read the section about where you said about Kenny's low, I think you said it was the greatest Barnet Barnet player ever. Um, I actually messaged um, I messaged uh, Kenny, and I, and I said that this has been written about him because uh, we did an interview with Kenny um, uh, quite a while ago. So sort of kind of tried to stay in touch with him. But uh, I actually agree with you because uh, he was my favourite player uh, of all time, Barnet. Uh, unbelievable yeah. player. He had a better Cruyff turn than Johan himself. I mean, he was absolutely <laughs> genius. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think we loved him. But I loved a lot of that side. I loved Gary Paul. 
you know, he scored a brilliant free kick up at Darlington when they were unbeaten in about the 85th minute, which sent us all mad. I loved Andy Clark. Andy Clark was an absolute joy to watch. And, you know, I've, I've tried to sort of speak about the wingers because we've had some brilliant wingers at Barnet over the years. You know, from, you know, you get all the old guys wax lyrical about Paddy Power, who was apparently an absolute genius. But for me, I mean, you know, I've seen Andy Clark, I've seen Albert, I've seen Jason Punchin, I've seen Darren Curry. I've also seen Eddie Steen put a few into the gardens over the years as well. <laughs> no, I was just, just going to say, um, I actually spoke to uh, Eddie Steen's brother and he thought it was hysterical and I told him what we did. Um, every, time, every time a ball went over into the, out in the crowd from any player, it was Eddie Steen, so he thinks it's hysterical. Um, he, he's kept all the local glaziers in Barnet happy for the amount of windows he's smashed in the Westcombe drive-in. <laughs> actually, I did, have a, I did have a question to ask you, actually, because it obviously related to the question I asked you before. So, obviously, we kept... Um, the season we went up with Barry Fry, because actually that was the big one. That was the finally breaking through that glass, you know, breaking through that, that barrier. What do you yeah. think changed? What do you think changed from that season where we just failed... And then the next season when we, we finally went up, what do you think changed? Ooh, it's a good question. Um, I think, uh, well, I mean, Bull and Carter as a, as a pairing were absolutely superb. But what actually changed? I'm not really sure. I mean, I, you know, I think sort of, I think there was maybe a few injuries in the year before and we lost out to Darlington. And I think we had more consistency over that year. I mean, one thing he did, he got rid of Andy Clark, didn't he? About in about the February, and he sold Clark to Wimbledon, I think, for two fifty or was it three fifty? I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, and he brought Nicky Evans back from Wickham in uh, February, March. Nicky Evans' first game was Boston away, and that was just because Nicky Evans was such a hero to the club. You know, he's such a crowd favourite. It gave the club just a massive boost. And uh, but saying that, I mean, we thought we were going to blow it again that year. You know, I mean, I, I went to Altrincham on a, a Saturday, it was a Saturday lunchtime kickoff in early April or maybe end of March, I think it was Easter Saturday, and we got absolutely run ragged. We got lost 4-1. Paul Schowler for Altrincham absolutely gave Gary Paul a schooling, and uh, it could have been eight or nine. In fact, we left about five, ten minutes early, and uh, we just, you know, we thought we'd blown it. We thought we'd just blown the league completely. And... Um, we won the league and Fry went out and signed Paul Schauer a few months later. So there you go. We, we have a habit of doing that, didn't we? Because we did that with Michael Gash. Um, yes. If you remember it in that, in that season where he, he helped us get over the line in, um, in that, it was called, uh, when, he came, when he came and played for Kidderminster and he, was a, he, was a, he would change the game for them. So it's interesting how we always get a scene. And, and Gratz as well, he scored five against us and we signed him, what, a couple of seasons later? Yeah. Yeah, I think also going back to your original question though, man, was the, uh, in 91, uh, we signed a guy in midfield. He only played about 10, maybe 15 games for us called Paul Richardson, who was absolutely outstanding. He was hard as nails, but he could play as well. And we, he didn't come into the football league because he'd taken an insurance payout, uh, retired out of the game. I think he'd been at Derby. And uh, he was a really, really good player. And he gave us that sort of steal in the middle of the park that, that sort of, you know, gave us that final push to go up. Um, just, just following on from, from that, the sort of Barry Fry era, I really enjoyed your chapter, The Holy Trinity, Dan. 
Uh, <laughs> and I think that's probably the first time that Martin Allen has been mentioned as part of either the Father, Son or Holy Spirit. I was going to ask you to sort of align each manager with uh, each of the sort of <laughs> the three parts of the Holy Spirit, but I think that would be a bit unfair. And what I was going to say is, Obviously, for sort of more recent years, Martin Allen has probably been, if we were to look in the last decade, probably the dominant figure in Barnet for the last decade, perhaps with the exception of Tony Cleantis. And I just wanted to ask sort of two questions. The first one was sort of how you assess Martin's relationship with the club. You write a lot about his successes and, and also about the times when he comes back and keeps us up. Like looking back on, on sort of Martin Allen, what, what sort of... What, sort of things jump out to you what stories what memories and and overall do you think he, he was a sort of a positive or a you know a slightly negative influence on the club um i think he i think he's a positive i mean i'm a martin allen fan um i think he's uh you know he, he's he's the man you pick up to the phone to when when you're in in the crap isn't he you know he's a, he's the sort of the go-to guy um but i think he's a classic impact manager um, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Martin's, um, he's blasted his copybook, isn't he? That's the thing. But there's some people out there who blame Tony Cleantis for not giving him the budget. I mean, you know, I, well, I don't think, I think we could sort of put up with Martin Allen when he went to, say, uh, you know, Brentford first time round or whatever, you know, or, um, I mean, Notts County, it, it was the timing, I think, that hasn't helped Martin Allen. And just some of the bizarre moves, you know, Eastley was, you know, absolutely just like, where did that come from? You know, and just sort of dropping down a division. And, uh, you know, I mean, Eastley weren't exactly front runners in the conference, were they? You know, and that, that was yeah. just a bizarre move. And also Chesterfield, who came down with us at the time. And it was like, wow, we just like played them the week before. You wonder if he was tapped up in the boardroom, but you also wonder whether he wasn't sort of given the budget that he should have been given or whether he was pinned down to a contract that was decent enough. But then again, if you were Tony Cleanthus, would you give him a three-year contract with his track record when you've got to pay him up as soon as he buggers off? And, and my sort of, sort of follow-up question to that, probably, it's probably two questions in one. Um, a lot of the book focuses on, on the times we've had at Underhill. And um, I know for a lot of fans, the sort of move to the Hyde is still quite a divisive issue. Um, and we've talked a little bit about how perhaps crowds have fallen. And I think there's probably a, a variation of views as to how important Underhill is to, to sort of Barnett's identity. And I just wanted to sort of start with that and then just ask one more question, if that's okay, ma'am. So the first question is, Dan, how, how important is Underhill, A, to your personal memories of Barnet, and B, to sort of Barnet's identity as a football club? Uh, very important. I think uh, it, it worries me the future of Barney if we stay over in Harrow. Um, you know, I mean, I, I feel that Barnet really is uh, um, a club who are playing in a part of London that I don't really identify with too much at the moment. I went to the Brentford game a couple of years ago, the 3 all, and yes. uh, we, a few of us all sort of met in London. We met in the city. We got the Jubilee line out there, and I was thinking, "Wow, these aren't like this isn't my line. This isn't my area. This isn't my my ends, you know." <laughs> and um, I just sort of didn't identify with it. Whereas, you know, I sort of I identify with Barnum, and I identify with the people. And I think, you know, what we've lost by going over to the Hive is we haven't got that community over there who've tended to sort of follow the club. 
You know, we haven't sort of picked up massive support over from Edgware or Stanmore or those areas. Whereas when we were successful at Underhill, we used to get a lot of guys come in from places like Welling Garden City and north of Potter's Bar, used to come in on the overground into New Barnet. And those guys have just disappeared. You know, the Wellham Greens and the Brookman's Park and even Welling Garden Hatfield. And I think there's a lot of kids now you know, I've been up to Welling Garden recently and there's kids walking around in speaking shirts and we've, we've lost those fans to another club, which which is painful, really. So I think for, unless we do go back to Barnet eventually, I think uh, I think the club might struggle. And uh, just a um, final question from me. I think I've talked a little bit about Mars Allen. I've talked about some of the great memories. Probably the biggest person to have an influence on the club since you've been there has been uh, Tony Cleantis in terms of, you know, the move to the Hive. And, um, you know, you, you talked quite a lot in detail about the Keep Barnet um, Alive campaign and obviously the move to the Hive as well and, and some of the memories and perhaps some of the memories that have been lost in that move. I was just wondering, you, you kind of almost dedicate a section to him towards the end of the book around, um, you know, his, well, you dedicate the entire chapter to him around, you know, his way. And it's quite interesting. You sort of end, uh, you, you know, that chapter, which with the saying that the future of Barnet Football Club is now in the hands of one man and his empire. And I just wanted to get a sense in your view of, of how you assess Tony's time at the club. I think there's a danger that perhaps we sometimes forget some of the work that actually was required to keep the club alive back in the, the late 90s, early, early 2000s. Um, but I was just curious to get your thoughts overall on, on what you think his legacy is at the moment and, and how you feel about the club going forwards. It's, it's a very good question. I mean, I, I had to be extremely careful because I didn't want to lose my house on a libel suit. <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> yeah. But I think, um, I mean, I think sort of, I mean, Tony Clemens, obviously to his credit, has put us on a, a fair financial footing. You know, the club are sort of fairly solvent going forward. But I just think that we are, we're treading water, I mean, aren't we? We're, we're in the sort of middle to lower reaches of the conference again, or the National League or whatever it is at the moment. And it's pretty dull. And I think if your, your ambition uh, revolves around just staying in that league, um, you know, as we did when we were in the old League Two back in, you know, in the Great Escape years, I think there will become a season where you don't actually realise your ambition, whether that's through injuries or whether that's through lack of budget or lack of finances. So, I mean, there are a hell of a lot of faults with Tony Cleanthus. Um, for me, I think that he's... Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm just not sort of happy that he's promised the Barnet fans something which hasn't materialised. Well, two things in my eyes, which I've tried to get across. One was the referendum on leaving Underhill... And the second one was um, that leaving Underhill, selling us the dream that it would allow us to play. I think the quote was actually championship football, wasn't it? Or League One football at one point. Yeah. And uh, neither have materialised. So, uh, you know, I'll try to get that across. But really, you've got to be factual in what you write because, you know, you, you know your arse is on the line as soon as anything goes into print. And uh, I've actually tried to be quite fair to him as well. So, uh, you know, hopefully I've got that across. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's, it's definitely a much more nuanced picture than a lot of people make out. Um, and I think, you know, some of the negativity in recent years has been justified and some of it's been unjustified. And it's just a, it's just a really interesting, you know, complex situation. I think you, you handled it really well. 
Um, yeah, yeah, no, there was, there was, oh, sorry, Dan, carry on. Yeah, I think also, I mean, you know, moving forward, as you were saying, Ian, I think, um, you know, I think we are in the hands of one man, though, now. I think if Tony Cleanthus walks away, uh, the club are in big, big trouble. And I think he's engineered himself the situation where, you know, he he is the sort of the be-all and end-all of Barnet Football Club. And I think, uh, you know, unless some mystery benefactor comes in who is going to pay him probably quite an extortionate rent for the hive, um, you know, I think we, we're in trouble. That's, that's very true. It was, in, it was interesting actually reading that section because um, you touched upon a theme that we have been talking about on Beast Pod for probably like close to two years now um, around being the sort of employer of choice. And you sort of cover the bit about um, around sort of the sort of the circles that, you know, and some of the stories that go around footballing circles around the way that we, um, that players feel like they're being treated, you know, when they come and play for Barnet. Um, so it was interesting that you, you, you touched upon that, um, you know, uh, and I think that's an important part of moving forward um, is that we don't, you know, I've always said, uh, I don't want players that are just desperate, you know, for any deal to come to Barnet. I want Bar- players to come, really come for, really want to come to Barnet, a bit like it was under Barry Fry when players really wanted to come and play for Barnet. Uh, and they do stuff like traveling from, you know, the north, you know, uh, you know, for every game, uh, that kind of thing. So it was interesting you picked up on that. So, um, you know, have you got any sort of further thoughts on that? On that sort of thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think you know we we we're based in one of the most expensive areas of the country when it comes to property, and we have to be, you know, players aren't exactly queuing up to play for Barnet, you know. So we have to actually make it attractive for them to actually come here. I mean, we went through a stage where we picked up maybe a few of the waifs and strays, didn't we? Like maybe 15 years ago, with people who have uh, certain. Uh, charges hanging over certain criminal charges hanging over them who are sort of decent players but you know now I think we, we you know we, we need to try and make it as attractive as possible I don't think we'll ever go back to those days because Stan Flashman was you know the days of the late 80s or early 90s because Stan Flashman was just paying you know what is in effect like championship or league one wages you know and you had people like Mark Carter used to commute down from Liverpool. Kenny Lowe would come down from Middlesbrough. Um, Paul Schowler gave up a job as a policeman in Manchester to turn full-time with Barnet. Um, you know, and those guys, um, you know, Gary Ball would come down from Lincolnshire, from Stamford in Lincolnshire. And, you know, those, those sort of days are over. But I'm sure there are enough decent footballers in the London area for us to actually make it attractive. And I think if you charge players for water, if you charge players for their own lunch on a daily basis, you know, there are other clubs out there that don't do this. And, you know, we're, we're immediately behind the ball game, you know, by, by sort of putting those, those, uh, those sort of codes in, you know, those sort of um, rules in by doing that. I don't know if he charges them parking to park at the hive on a daily basis but you know it's 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 not exactly conducive to to making an attractive proposition no agree agree and um i suppose finally um what do you make of the the, the sort of the, the the turbulent sort of lockdown period and and you know what's come out the other side in terms of the side that we have and 
the early stage of the season. What, what have you made of that so far? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure about Peter Beadle when he was signed, but I think he's an honest guy. He comes across as a, you know, a normal guy. He fronts up, he speaks, you know, he speaks candidly and honestly. Um, I like the look of these players as well. I think they're, they're sort of trying and I think they're, they're probably not the most talented bunch we've ever had, but I think there's probably a more sense of more togetherness than there has been for a couple of years. Um, and I really like the look of uh, Michael Petrasso as well. I think he's, uh, I think he's got potential. There's a mate of mine phoned me from Canada and said, oh, you've just signed this guy. And I said, you know, I said, what's he like? And he said, well, he said he'll do he'll do fine at Barnet. I said, "What's the standard in Canada compared to to Barnet like?" And he said, "Much better." So he thinks it's probably Championship or League One, their standard in Canada. So uh, yeah, the omens are good for Petrasso. So uh, fingers crossed. Or the Toronto Tornado, as reckless keeps calling him. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, well, Dan, thanks ever so much for joining us today. Um, Please, everyone, um, if you haven't got it, get yourself a, a copy of Barnet Affair. Um, it is crack. It is brilliant. And unless you're really old, it pretty much covers all the periods that you've probably been a Barnet fan. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I literally was sitting there in the kitchen reading it, like whilst trying to make dinner. And my wife was like, "That must be really good for you to be sitting there with a book in your hand." So, um, so yeah. So it was a yeah. It's a cracking read. Um, and Ian, have you got anything to add? No, just, yeah, I think it's, it's brilliant. I was saying to Dan beforehand, a lot of the reading about Barnet um, either is very scant and, and doesn't cover much detail in, in the sort of nationals or the, sort of the big online things. Or alternatively, it can be quite myopic and, and one-eyed. And uh, I think this is a really, really good but really balanced. And yeah, I, I really hope, Dan, that um, we can add a few good chapters to it in the next few seasons. And uh, yeah, absolutely loved it. So thank you so much for putting it together. I would really recommend everyone gets it. It's a great Christmas present. And um, Mem, I'm sure we'll, we'll pop up a little link on the on the podcast. But yeah, Dan, thanks so much for coming on, mate. And, and also for the incredible amount of work and research that's gone into producing a really detailed but also very enjoyable book. No worries, gents. Well, look, thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, even, even to those fans who don't like Barnet Football Club, they make great doorstops. So, uh, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but, no, thanks a lot for having me. And it's a pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up soon over a beer when we're all allowed back into ground. So, uh, you know, it'd be, it'd, be great. it'd be great, wouldn't it? So, uh, no, best of luck with the, uh, with the Beast Pod. And uh, pleasure having me on. No worries. Thanks, thanks mate. Take care, mate. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Bye. 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 What's up, world? Let's get it poppin' with CC Mixer. It's your boy, Jeff Williams. Word. What's up, young world? It's Jeff Williams. And Jay Lamb. You're listening to CC Mixer. Closure on the inside, ulcer on the outside. Footsteps tap cool.